This is a Federal News Network podcast. Everyone agrees artificial intelligence is powerful technology. That's why agencies across the government are looking at it to speed things up and improve mission delivery. But AI can be misused. Just look at the super surveillance society that is communist China. For how federal agencies can keep AI honest, we turn to someone who's done extensive AI research. She's the program lead for the Artificial Intelligence Security Initiative at the University of California, Berkeley, Jessica Newman. Ms. Newman, good to have you on. Hi, thank you for having me. And as agencies rush headlong to employ AI, what are some of the guardrails they need to be aware of, especially given that this is deployed in the public sector and often affecting the public? Yeah, absolutely. There's a significant number of risks that we have to be cognizant of with the development and use and monitoring of AI systems. And this is only more critical when we're using them in the public sector. So we can think of the risks in a simplistic way as being related to technical risks as well as societal risks. The technical risks are uh, primarily associated with the design of those systems with considerations around uh, was the training data appropriate and representative? Is there sufficient understanding of really uh, how the model is reaching conclusions and the decisions that it comes to, whether these are robust against adversarial attack or, or reliable in new environments? But then there's also those societal risks that we have to take into consideration. This includes uh, things related to polarization and extremism, for example, that we might see with the use of recommender systems that are optimizing, you know, for attention spent on a particular uh, online platform, the spread of uh, disinformation, uh, potentially in some cases, actually, you know, swaying elections, disproportionate harms to minority communities from the use of bias systems. And we've seen in decisions made related to public services in terms of credit reporting or uh, in the justice system, uh, how these can lead to false arrests and other, you know, material damages for for individuals. But this kind of scales to broader scale societal risks as well with economic impacts and, and even geopolitical and national security risks. So all of that to kind of lay the groundwork of what's at stake here. Sure. But, um, and does the risk originate with the data that is used to train algorithms or is the risk inherent in the algorithms themselves? It's both and more. So there are certainly risks associated with the decisions around which data sets to use and whether those are are accurate or embedding historical biases into them. There's also risks associated with how the algorithms are designed. These are you know, designed by humans, by teams of humans, are not necessarily representative of the people that they're going to end up impacting and affecting. But there's other considerations, too, in some cases with large models, the environmental cost of, of running them, for example, is, is something people weren't necessarily paying attention to a few years back, but is is increasingly on people's radar. And what about the danger that it will give, say, an algorithm and a system will give results that are really correct, but we don't like the results? And I'll just make a hypothetical situation. You've got 10 green people applying for credit or some sort of program, and you have 10 blue people that are applying for that same benefit. And it turns out that seven of the green people are turned down, but only one of the blue people are turned down. And you say, well, it's biased against the green people. But what if the sample of green people that applied 
really were not worthy of the program, and the blue people were just because that's who applied. So it could look like a disparate impact when, in fact, it was a totally accurate, fair outcome. Right. And this is where it matters about what the human decisions are. And that's why we want to make sure that there are are humans in the in the loop and in any kind of uh, critical decision making environment, because in some circumstances, it might not matter. We might be fine with having all blue people or all green people. And in other cases, that might not be ideal, even if they were the most quote unquote appropriate for that position. Maybe the lack of having those other people ends up having impacts down the line, right? So whatever criteria you're providing to that system maybe is not perfectly capturing the the picture of the whole world that you want to take into account. It might tell you to invite more purple people and then get a better <laughs> result. We're speaking with Jessica <laughs> We're speaking with Jessica Newman. She's the program lead for the Artificial Intelligence Security Initiative at the University of California, Berkeley. What are the differences between the approaches to AI that are appropriate in the public sector versus those that industry might use, say you're trying to sell more airline seats or more Hershey bars? Yeah. So in this research from uh, the Center for Long-Term Cybersecurity, we looked at what uh, five different governments around the world are doing. And so that was primarily taking that approach of public sector responses, there's a range of what people are looking at right now. And with everything from voluntary guidelines to for low risk systems, all the way up to bans for uh, systems that might pose unacceptable risks. But each each case that we looked at did take a different approach to this. In the U.S. context, we do not have any federal regulation at this stage. We have the National Institute for Standards and Technology, or NIST, creating AI risk management framework. And that was something they were requested by Congress to do in the National Defense and Authorization Act for fiscal year 2021. So that process, it'll be a two-year long process that they've just started now with a request for information. You know, those guidelines from NIST are going to be voluntary There are other efforts in the U.S. federal system that are also in play right now. The Government Accountability Office has established a framework for algorithmic accountability. Uh, They're hoping agencies will increasingly use that. We are seeing at the DOD that there are numerous efforts underway to implement governance structures for the use of AI throughout the military. We also uh, have the National AI Initiative that's looking at coordinating what the uh, U.S. federal agencies are doing related to artificial intelligence. So there's a sort of uh, ecosystem of efforts out there, but there's not really anything uh, resembling legislation yet or regulation yet in the U.S. context. What are some of the other countries that your research looked at? I'm presuming they're similar countries to the U.S. and being Western industrialized democracies. And what are some examples of how they're approaching it? That's right. Yeah. So we looked at the EU AI Act. This is the first AI legal framework being developed that will probably be implemented by member states uh, within the next year or two. The way that they look at it there is that the majority of AI systems are most likely going to be low risk. And it's just voluntary guidelines that they recommend for those. But there are also high risk systems that they have uh, recommended set of governance structures to help mitigate those risks. So 
These are these are applications like biometric identification or managing critical infrastructure uh, or access to public services, things like that, where they are sort of directly impacting people's livelihoods. And these high risk systems have to go through a conformity assessment. So that's a sort of concrete way to assess the standards for the data quality, make sure there's human oversight and accuracy and robustness of those models. There's disclosure requirements around key characteristics and capabilities and limitations of those systems. And there's also post-market monitoring required because one of the novel issues related to AI is the degree to which they might change post-deployment if they're continuing to learn from new data inputs. Got it. So the big issue then in many ways boils down to transparency of the way the AI system works. This is something the U.S. military has said, especially for, say, decision-making systems that might fire an autonomous weapon, for example. They need to audit how that decision was made and be able to understand it and make it public in some cases. Is that that the essential issue here? Transparency is a, is a major issue. There is significant power asymmetry and information asymmetry right now that exists. In many cases, the algorithms are considered proprietary. It might not be made public how what data sets they were based on and how they're reaching those decisions. So certainly increasing the transparency and the documentation and the explainability of that is a major consideration, especially in these high stakes environments. All right. So you've compiled a pretty thorough report on this. Are you getting it before the eyes of federal decision makers in Congress? Well, now Uh, you will because we're talking about it. Yeah, we, we'd hope so. We, we're certainly sharing the report as much as we can. We are also several institutions from UC Berkeley. This includes the Center for Long-Term Cybersecurity, where, where I'm based, where the AI Security Initiative is based, but also another center called the Center for Human AI Compatibility, or CHI, and the Citrus Policy Lab. We're all coordinating on a response to NIST's request for information on their development of an AI risk management framework. So we will uh, share this research in that submission, hoping that folks involved with NIST's work, as well as other federal agencies, will see that. Uh, but we're also pointing to other research from our centers and key considerations to take into account. Jessica Newman is the program lead for the Artificial Intelligence Security Initiative at the University of California, Berkeley. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you very much. We'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I am your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Vice Admiral Cutler Dawson. Cutler has had an incredible career serving our country for 35 years in the Navy, where he attained the rank of Vice Admiral. During his service, he had numerous assignments afloat and ashore, including Commander, Second Fleet, Striking Fleet Atlantic, and in Washington at the Pentagon and on Capitol Hill, where he was the Navy's Chief of Legislative Affairs. Immediately following his retirement from active duty in 2004, he became the president and CEO of Navy Federal Credit Union, the world's largest credit union, where he served for 14 years. Under his leadership, Navy Federal grew from 2 million to 8 million members. Phenomenal. Cutler, welcome and thanks for joining me. Thank you, Shane. You've had a fascinating career across both military and the private sector. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and your professional journey? Well, I started out at the Naval Academy where I graduated in 1970. And then, as you mentioned, spent 35 years in the Navy. Um, 
with uh, six actual actual uh, afloat commands. Uh, the first one was when I was 27 years old. Uh, I didn't know enough to be scared of anything, and it was uh, probably one of the highlights of my career. Uh, and then after I retired after 35 years, I went to uh, work at Navy Federal Credit Union as the CEO, where I spent my next 14 years. Um, I'm I'm currently retired and enjoying life, and um, it's been a great run for me. How would you describe your leadership style, and how's that developed over the years? My style has been quite con- consistent. Um, I believe, and I've learned this in the Navy, that you have to go to the deck plates uh, to see what is going on. And you have to learn what your people do and how they do it so you can help them to be better at it and more efficient and more productive. Um, it's um, something that you need to do all the time. Um, I remember I used to tell folks that um, you don't want to retreat to your cabin. And what I mean by that is um, the longer you're in a position, the less you think you have to get out and about. But that should be the opposite. You should get out and about more because people change, situations change, and you've got to figure out a way to get to them and find out what they're doing and where, what you can do to help them. Uh, I. We'll talk a little bit more about your book, but I read it um, from C to the C-suite. Fantastic read. You talk about the deck plates in that um, as well. I would encourage everyone to get a copy of this and read some more detail about going to the deck plates. Cutler, who was the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? I had numerous while I was in the Navy, but uh, the quality that, that I enjoyed the most was the leaders that got to know me as an individual and that they cared about me. And I could tell that they cared about me. And they were not only my leaders, but they were my mentors. And um, I remember um, one particular one, Bill Schiffer, when I had my first assignment at the Pentagon, um, I would go in to see him with my problem of the day. And I knew that he had numerous problems of his own, but he would stop and he would focus on me and he would make me feel like I was the most important person in his world. Um, And I I tried to do that um, throughout my career. But really, it's about caring for your people. Cutler, in reading your book, there was a quote you used that you used to inspire those people that work for you. And it really got my attention. And it it was, you are the captain of your own ship. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what that means and how it was useful to you and the leaders you were developing. Um, Absolutely. Um, What I mean by captain of your own ship, when you are the captain of a ship, sometimes you're in the middle of the ocean and you don't have anybody to turn to to make decisions. You don't have anybody to turn to ask, what should I do now? You have to be the captain of that ship. And I I translated that um, into, let's say, Navy Federal's organization, where I would tell branch managers that I said, you are the captain of the ships of Navy Federal. You're the ones that are facing the the members or customers, as others call them, every day. And you have to make decisions without a lot of guidance, in some cases, and without a lot of time. So be the captain of your own ship. Step up, uh, make decisions, uh, do what you think is right, and you never can go wrong. 
I think that is so important. And you have to give your people a little bit of latitude to take some risk as well, because there is risk for them in doing that and risk to your organization. That's right. And and I mentioned that I took command of my first ship uh, with five years in the Navy and I was 27 years old. Well, my boss had 32 years in the Navy and um, his, his guidance to me when I first met him was, Cutler, you do the right thing, and I'll back you up all the way. What a wonderful way to, to spend an assignment with, uh, with backup and, and guidance like that. What, what great, great advice. Uh, it's clear leadership is a topic you're passionate about. You wrote the book we mentioned before, um, From C to C-Suite. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? Yes. When I was at Navy Federal, I would tell C-stories. Uh, as parables to get my point across. And um, folks would tell me, Cutler, we like your stories. It gives us a picture of what you're trying to tell us. Now, what else are they going to say? They work for me, but uh, uh, I took it as a compliment. And it was. And my wife encouraged me to write a book and I needed a co-author to help me. And I found a lady named Taylor Keelan, who was the perfect perfect co-author. She turned in my stories into wonderful chapters um, that I'm very proud of. Where can listeners find a copy? Well, you can get it on Amazon uh, and you can also uh, get it on the Naval Institute website. Uh, And I might add that um, any proceeds from the book Navy Federal uses uh, to give to charity. Fantastic. Cutler, thank you very much. Really enjoyed your time and your lessons and in leadership and sharing with us your life story. And and, uh, I've learned a lot both from talking to you today and reading your book. And thank you very much for your time. It's my pleasure. And I I would like to add one thing if I could, Shane. Um, During my assignments in Washington, D.C., I gained the utmost respect for the civilians that work here every day. They're hardworking, they're dedicated, and they, they have my eternal gratitude. Uh, I got to come and go from the Pentagon. They stayed every day and worked in Washington when I got to go out and um, enjoy being at sea. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah, w- WEPA serves civilian federal employees, but your comment is well taken because the interaction between the two is is continuous, it's nonstop, and it's critical. So uh, the career civil servants, as well as career military, uh, our country would not be where it is today without them. I totally agree. And and I can tell you from the U.S. Navy standpoint, uh, we couldn't operate like we do without them being the backbone of what we do. Thank you very much for your time today, Cutler. And to everyone listening to Lessons in Leadership podcast, we'll see you next time. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast1 to learn more and start your free trial. As an Alliant Energy representative, I really enjoy helping businesses save. 
Today, I visited a business that asked for a free energy audit. After walking through their facility, I let the customers know how much money and energy they could be saving. Plus, I gave them an action plan detailing how to improve their energy efficiency. I showed them how they could save even more with rebates from Alliant Energy on equipment upgrades. If you are interested in saving energy and money, schedule a free energy audit at AlliantEnergy.com slash energy audit.